rugged Napa, heat spikes, loads of coffee, hurts so good, and a Tesla ride on autopilot. You're on the road with Chuck Kramer, Mr. California Wine. I live in London selling cases of damn good California wine across Europe for the Tolado family. And this podcast is about California, the Golden State, my home state, and its awesome wines. This week, I'm chatting with the winemaker at Maxfield Winery in the Childs Valley AVA in Napa. Every week, we're going to have some fun and ultimately improve your boozing. This year, I was very lucky to be in Napa, not once, but twice, back in February and May. And both times, I found my way back to a beautiful winery, Maxville Winery, nestled deep in the Childs Valley AVA in Napa. This part of Napa is rugged Napa, producing mountain fruit due to its location high up in the Vaca Mountains. The Childs Valley is a small AVA, nestled between St. Helena and Lake Berryessa. And it's named after Colonel Joseph Childs, a soldier from Missouri. Colonel Childs fought in the Seminole Wars and was given a piece of land known as Rancho Catacula, the Valley of Oaks, by Governor Manuel Mitchell Torrena of Mexico. There are only a handful of wineries in this part of Napa, including Maxville, which sits at an elevation of 1,200 feet above the valley floor. Soil types include clay loam and stony clay with some volcanic outcroppings. Vineyards were first planted at the Maxville Winery in 1974 when the original owner started a wine business. Fast forward to 2013, the new owners of Maxville began an extensive redevelopment and restoration of the vineyards and winery. This week, it's all hands on deck at Maxville as Napa and California wineries are in the middle of harvest. Harvest is a manic time of year for all winemakers, including this week's guest who is fueled daily by drinking loads of coffee. The 2022 vintage will be like 2021 in Napa, with yields down due to another year of drought, yet quality is expected to be high. And as always, Mother Nature continues to throw challenges at our winemakers, who are confronted with heat spikes early on in September. And what does a Tesla ride on autopilot have to do with anything? Well, keep on listening. Hey, I need to get back on the road. I've got a winemaker waiting for me in my Zoom green room. So buckle up, here we go, on the road. A quick word from the buyer. The buyer.net is your connection to the premium on trade. The buyer.net is your on trade platform, linking key industry leaders, influencers, producers, and suppliers in order to improve reach and awareness in the UK hospitality sector. My guest this week was born in France and kicked off his wine career at the famous Chateau Lynch Bage in Bordeaux at the age of 13 so he could purchase an Xbox. He returned to Lynch Bage a few years later to work his first full harvest, which eventually put him on his wine journey. He earned his master's degree in enology from the winemaking school in Bordeaux. And while in school, he worked as an intern during harvest at the Alpha Omega Winery in Napa and Monvero in Tuscany. In 2015, my guest returned to Alpha Omega in Napa as their assistant winemaker. Since 2020, He's been the winemaker at Maxville Winery in Napa. You're on the road with Mr. California Wine. And my guest this week is Bastian Lucas, winemaker at Maxville Winery in the Childs Valley AVA in Napa. 
Bastian, great to see you again. And thanks for being on the road with me this week. Thanks for having me, Jackford. I appreciate it. Last time we got together was uh, back in May. We were well, at the winery with Halgartson Wines. Uh, they're, they're here, one of our distributor partners here in the UK. Through a bunch of your uh, wines, the 2021 vintage, which we'll get to in a little bit. Um, and then we had a fun dinner, right? At Don Giovanni's. Yeah. John joined John joined us. Todd Wolger joined us from Trilado. John from uh, the winery. And then we had Jim and Steve with us. Uh, that was a fun night. It was really fun. It was really fun. I really enjoyed uh, the dinner that we had, the wine that we were able to drink, and the, the discussions and the talks we had about, you know, people that are passionate about this product. So, yeah, really enjoyed that uh, that dinner with you guys. And you still have that cool Tesla? Always, always, yeah. More than ever. <laughs> it works really I, great in the vineyard, too, so I'm up for it. I, tell you, I felt like I was in a James Bond car because <laughs> I, I don't think... I'm pretty sure um, they're not allowed here in the UK for those uh, Teslas to have like full, like 100% autopilot. But in the US oh. or in the US or California, it's fine, right? And this is what your car is um, loaded with, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. I think there are like five different levels of autopilots uh, based on on the difference uh, of how much the computer is actually taking over. And I think we are at level four. I think we're all there. Uh, and level five is the full on where the car can drive without any input from any human being. This is still illegal across the across the, the planet, but we're getting close to it. But I think the level four in California is not what you have in UK. I think it's up to level three or something, which is basically an assistant. Yeah, no, you had uh, Jim and Steve from Helgarton in the back seat, and I think their eyes were wide open because you just literally, you took your foot off the accelerator brake, your hands, you, you, you crossed your hands across your chest, and the car just basically took us from Don Giovanni's back to the hotel. Basically, basically, yeah, it's pretty convenient. Sometimes, you know, in the morning when uh, when you're not lined up yet, uh, not having the coffee or everything, it can help uh, making sure that uh, the, the the road is still in front of you. <laughs> well, that was uh, your car, and while well, you, as a driver, provided greater entertainment after dinner, that was a lot of. Uh, that was a lot of fun. You know, I was going through the website and we chatted quite a bit at the winery and over dinner. I didn't realize, though, that you worked at the infamous Chateau Lynch-Bosch in Bordeaux at the age of 13. What were you doing? Uh, yes. tell, me, tell me about that story. So it was a first introduction in, in, in Harvest. I was I was living in Poyac. Uh, I was doing my, uh, my cruises over there. I was a kid, obviously. And uh, I wanted to buy, you know, the new Xbox that actually went out that year. And I was like, okay, I need to work to try to get some money to, to be able to buy for that. And then um, I was able to get this little internship in the Chateau uh, Lange Bash. Very good, very good uh, growth. I actually went back over there to, to work two more Harvest, uh, um, more in-depth. But that first uh, that first experience, actually, I stopped to go back to school right uh, before the big rush came, you know, the grapes. So I just saw a glimpse of it, how to set up and prepare a winery for the crush that's coming up, receiving the ferals, making sure everything is in line, making sure everything is clean, sanitizing all the tanks, you know, like all the dirty work that is done before the, the rush actually hits. Wow. So you took that job just so you can earn some pocket money to buy your that's first it. Xbox. That's it. And I That's, got it. <laughs> that is so cool. Now, when you were working there as a 13-year-old, I mean, working in the vineyards, working in the chateau there, was this like um, your what? what? Sorry, go no, ahead. go on. No, no I was, was more, this, only working in the, in the cellar at the time. I was in not the working. I wasn't involved with the vineyard. Yeah. Okay. But so, but you're working at Lynch Bosch at the age of 13. Was this your wow, wine moment that you, got you hooked on your path? Or were you, or was there another moment where you were inspired and you said, look, at this is what I want to do for the rest of my life? 
That's a great question. It actually was not um, at that time. I was pretty happy about you know discovering it. It was also my first experience working at the age of fourteen. You need to have like specific uh, regulations and everything, you know. Um, but I did not see much about the wine. I did not know what I wanted to do at that time. I was not adamant about anything about winemaking or fermentation, or I did not know anything about it at all. But it's still Lanchbad that actually hooked me into the winemaking uh, because I went back after. Uh, when I was older, I think it was 18 or 19 when I did a, a full harvest over there. And that completely blew my mind. Uh, that changed my perspective on, or actually created a perspective and understanding of what winemaking was. And um, this, was, this was the reason why I went back to school to study all the winemaking and everything, because I saw at that time the, the, the perfect combination, in my opinion, between, you know, artistry and some decisions that are made based on how you want to to the wine to be perceived and how you want it to go. And those decisions can be wrong. If you want to get one style versus another, this is your, your input. But it's all surrounded by uh, a lot of science, a lot of chemistry, biochemistry, and that always hooked me up. So this, the combination of those two um, actually uh, clicked in my brain, and this is what made me go back to it. So maybe four or five years after I did my first experience. Okay, so you worked a couple harvests, and then you went on to school. Where did you earn your... Um your degree in enology in winemaking uh, at the school of bordeaux uh we have five schools in france and then uh, because uh, bordeaux was the region that made me enjoy wine um i really wanted to do my degree over there to, uh, to try to get the closest to the style that i that i appreciated and uh and this is where i ended up so got back to school to get a bachelor degree that allows you to um to go to this master in in, in winemaking that was uh, located in bordeaux yeah so you're now the winemaker at Maxville Lake Winery in the Charles Valley in Napa. 2021, correct me, 2021 is your first harvest? 2020. Uh, I just arrived in time to not pick much because of, uh, of the fires that we had. 2021 mm -hmm. was the first harvest where I can put my name on a uh, on a red product for sure. Yeah, from okay. And then take me back then. What led to this position at, at Maxville? Where were you making wines before? Um, so before that, uh, after I finished with my school, uh, I did some internships. So I went to Napa to do an internship in 2013 at Alpha Omega Winery down in the 29, uh, close to St. Helena. Um, went back to Europe to finish my degree uh, and do another harvest also in Europe. So I went to Italy, uh, in Tuscany, uh, a place called Montevero. And then... I was called back by uh, the, the winemaker and friend that was Alpha Omega at the time, John Huffliger, uh, to come and, and do a full year in the wine business, which is pretty big when you just get out of, uh, of school to have like 12 months lined up because usually people need you for harvest. Um, so definitely I jumped on that and I, uh, I came back to Alpha Omega in 2015. I was in charge of uh, the lab and then my position evolves to uh, be more an enologist and bring in some research and development idea and protocols in uh, different trials that we were doing to finish as the assistant winemaker uh, up to 2020. So I stayed five years over there. Five years there. And then how did this role as winemaker at Maxville come about? Uh, uh, what do you mean by come about? Well, no. So in terms of, so you're, you're an assistant winemaker at Alpha Omega. How did, how did, how did that jump happen? I mean, what occurred for you to, you know, what took you from Alpha Omega to, to, uh, to Maxville? How did that, how did that role come about? 
Well, this opportunity of uh, of being able to move um, up in the in the ladder and being able to put my uh, my style into the wine was definitely why I, I wanted to to start this career. So I had this opportunity meeting Anthony here, coming to this wonderful property when they were looking for um, a winemaker in 2020, and this blew my mind. I really love the really love Maxville where it was located, how how the uh, the property was, the cave that we have here that has been dug also. Uh, everything kind of reminded me of of something you know less of a rush in the in the south of Napa, something where you can take a little bit more your time and trying to do you know something a, a beautiful product in a in a more calm area. Um, and so I was like, this is this is my this is my time, this is my chance. I have a I have to jump on that occasion. So this is basically yeah. what happened. Yeah, Anthony Sue. We didn't mention Anthony Sue. He didn't join us for dinner last that that night out, but he's a, he's your CEO there. And you're right; it's a beautiful winery, right? You got these amazing caves off to the left as yeah. you approach the winery, and uh, you have about what a thousand acres there. How many acres are planted to vineyards? Yeah, we have a thousand acre of property. We have a hundred acres planted about, and uh, we're looking into extending that to a potential 150 to 200 acres plantable. Uh, in the future, and we're approaching that. You know, it's a, it's a hillside. It's a, it's a not really flat surfaces. We have hills everywhere, so we're trying to be very respectful also of the nature of the the water flow, the creek. You know, we're trying to just set some 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 vineyard here, some uh, winemaking areas, but we don't want to make an impact in the nature that would bring bulldozers flattening everything. So we cannot plant a thousand acre for sure, uh, but the two hundred that we're selecting. Uh, it's definitely something that respects the uh, the value as well. Yeah, it's a very mountainous, rugged, and we will get to that in a second. Let's just take um just take a step back. Uh, so you you know you worked in Bordeaux, uh, you've worked in Italy, you've worked in Napa, Alpha Omega, now at Maxville. Who do you credit as your mentor? Do you have one? Um, yeah, definitely the person that I got a chance to meet at Alpha Omega when I was uh, when I was young as well. I was in my 14, 15, um, was John Huffliger. He was the intern at the time over there. Uh, came in the Valley in the 2000s to become the winemaker at Newton and then founded as the winemaking founder, um, Alpha Omega. And I always was looking uh, up on him to receive advice on what is the best, you know, best way to... Uh, to start learning. I want to learn more. This is a good thing is as soon as you're out of school in winemaking, then this is where the learning actually starts, begins, because this is where you have all the different variables that you can see that people are are, are, are doing to, to, you know, have their style in place. And so I always asked him, you know, is it a good idea to go abroad? Should I focus more on to staying in Napa to have that, you know, as far as experience? So I kind of like always had him um, advising me on that. And uh, and that also gave me the chance to come here for the uh, for the internship, which he was very clear and blunt with me is if you're not good, you're not. That's it. You know, and then he called me back. So I'm pretty happy about how we ended up. Um, and yeah, so John is now the consulting winemaker, as a matter of fact, for a, a Maxville winery as well. So we're still working together, which is pretty fun. It sounds like you guys have a really good, uh, solid relationship. Any one piece of advice that he gave you early on that still stays true to today? Um, yeah, definitely do not believe 100% of what, you know, you learn at school. This is a wonderful baseline and, and line that you can follow to make sure that it's going in the right direction. But don't, don't hesitate to take to take uh, actions that are going completely against what you learn. Don't, don't dump everything, you know, but like maybe one metric could be 
completely modified or something that you've been taught not to do, you know, and try to see how it works. Basically try, try everything. If you have the chance to be able to try and, and just see the result and, and adjust your style based on that. Learning is key uh, in this, in this job. I feel like we have one shot a year, you know, when we're making wine and, and that's basically it. So we need to intake as much information as we can from that, uh, from that vintage that we produce to be able to get conclusions out of it and continue working the style out. I imagine that as a winemaker, you have to be fairly open-minded because there's just so many variables, right? Soil, climate, weather, drought, fires. There's a lot of factors going into making wine, not just the juice itself, correct? A lot, a whole lot of factors into making wine. And you can have wine that will taste dramatically different, even if their lab numbers are pretty similar, depending on how you how you do the extractions, uh, how much you ferment, how what temperature you're using. There is, there is many, many, many variables. And my teachers, even back then, were telling me that we basically know just a few percentage of how the wine is made. And we're trying to know more and more. But the percentage that we know, we know them very well. And then now we just try to extend because it's a very complex um, process and a very complex product overall. Yeah, but then you have that science. You have that foundation of science. Science is a good backup. Science gives you a lot of information. But always confront whatever science tells you to do with what your tastes tell you to do. You know, to try to like put that together. Making wine off a spreadsheet you possibly could find recipes that would work out, but I don't think this is where you're going to find excellency or try to get better at it. A lot of creativity as well mm -hmm. goes into yeah. uh, making wine and I guess personal judgments and listening to uh, to others. Let's talk about uh, Maxville. You know, again, it's a beautiful place. Everybody listening, when you're in Napa, you got to go see Bastian and John and and Anthony and visit and visit this beautiful winery. Okay, so you have a thousand acres there, a hundred right now planted to, to vineyards. What's planted at the property? Uh, so we have all the Bordeaux varietals, uh, meaning the five Bordeaux varietals being uh, Merlot, Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, Malbec, um, uh, and Petit Verdot. Uh, mostly we're going to have Cabernet Sauvignon. We have about 22 acres of it. Uh, Cabernet Franc will have about six acres of it. Uh, Malbec will have 3.5 acres, give or take. And for the Merlot, we have about like 6.3 acres, 6.5 acres. But Chiverdo is the smallest. Usually even in the blends, that's the smallest you'll have. And we have about three acres of it. And it's doing very well. Uh, we have also some white Sauvignon Blanc, which is used in Loire and uh, also Bordeaux varietal, we can say. So we have a little bit of, little bit of that, about like five acres. Uh, we're mm -hmm. planting a little more as well. Uh, and then we have uh, varietals that are more American. We definitely have the Zinfandel in here, uh, old vine and everything. We have about 35 acres producing very good Zinfandel on, on dry farm. Uh, and Petit Syrah, which I actually found being a wonderful varietal to grow in, in Charles Valley here. That's probably the variety that um, I found was the best in this valley. I, I was able to work with some Santelina Petit Syrah as well and some more Valley Floor. Um, really appreciate what we're able to do here. And we have about 10, 10 acres of that, give or take. Why does the, um, I want to ask you about Zen in a second, but why does that Petit Syrah do so well in the Charles well, Valley? Um, I think it's it's a lot to do with terroir uh, that we have around here. So one of the good things of Charles Valley is the, the temperature shifts, if you may. And I think this varietal is definitely benefiting a lot from that. It keeps a lot of uh, acidity 
in it, and yet it ripens fairly well in terms of tannins and in tannins uh, when they're when it's concerned, um, and it balances very nicely as well. So um, I'm still learning on how to you know get this particular showing the best as well, and how and why it's working that that wonderfully here. But so far, that's the best uh, patisserie I've tasted was from this valley. <laughs> yeah, that patisserie is awesome, 100 as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We'll always like uh, let ourselves potentially blend a little bit, but we never want to denaturate a, um, a a variety. If we just bring something up, it needs to be a little subtle and just lifting everything up. But we need to to recognize what we're what we're tasting. That's the whole idea of it: making the best wine possible, and yet uh, making it representative of what you're tasting. Yeah, no, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful wine. A lot of power structure, but you know, well balanced and uh, great mm -hmm. food wine and. It's a wine that could, you know, drinking well now, extremely well now, but it's a wine, Petit Syrah, that can age for quite some time, right? Yeah. One of the biggest challenges of the Valley as a whole is to uh, to make wine that is drinkable early because a lot of people are buying the wine and drinking it very quick. We're talking some numbers I've, I've, I've heard was 90 plus percent were of the wine purchased were drink in 48 hours after they were purchased. Um, so you need to have something that shows uh, well, on people that really want to enjoy fresher type of wines, but also when you're a winemaker in that in that big bold red fruit, you know you have a, an aging potential that came out of it. So being able to play on that and making it also having its edibility, plus being able to drink it earlier is is definitely the biggest challenge that we faced in the in the valley in general. And the petit Syrah does not cut it out of that. What type of soils is that Petit Syrah planted? Or what type of soils are planted there in the vineyards? Uh, so we have mostly silt loam here, a little bit of clearia here and there that we're considering planting white variety because they show better on, on, a, on a less draining uh, soil. But we have good soil, a little bit of sand as well, depending on the area. Uh, we have a lot of uh, different types in the valley as a whole. Um, and Charles Valley is pretty specific with the loam that we have and the fact that the water, you know, goes down also the hill. So we have a pretty good control on how much we want to stress our vines here. Bastion, let's talk about Zinfandel. You have 35 acres planted to Zinfandel. It's dry farmed. How old are those vines? Um, for the oldest, we have 80 to 82 years old, uh, give or take on here. Uh, they're not producing a lot of fruit. So even we have a pretty big, decent amount of, of acre planted, they're still like pretty low on the yield. Uh, but you get that you get quality against the yield that you're you're having, and it's also dry farm. There is no uh, it's head train, so it's like a very a glimpse in the past uh, of how Zinfandel and, and vineyard were planted around here. I love Zin. I tell you, and I've had your Zins, but I haven't seen those. Um, I haven't seen the vineyards where they're planted those old bush train vines. So next time I'm out there, um, I'd like to uh, I'd like to check that out. How how high up are these vineyards? So I have to like put my brains in in uh, meters versus uh, uh, versus well, feet around here. <laughs> I think we're at like twelve hundred was the number that I got in feet, if I'm not mistaken. In this twelve hundred feet. Okay, I so think that was it, right? You made wine at Alpha Omega. You're you're there off St. Helena Highway. You're on Valley Floor. What's the biggest difference in your opinion? I mean, look at everybody's making good fruit. If you're producing good wine from those vineyards, everybody's producing good fruit, making good wine in the Valley. In your opinion though, what's the difference between mountain fruit and Valley fruit? Temperature shift. Uh, definitely. That's one of the biggest that we have. Uh, the nights in the Napa Valley are fairly cold 
all across the, the place, which is a good thing. It keeps your acidity nice and it, it, it calms your fine uh, during, during the night. Um, during the day, temperature can go pretty high. We actually just went out of a heat spike when we had 112, 114 on several days in a row. Those nights were a little bit warmer. Um, but what it does is if, if the vine gets um, too hot too quick, then it has some difference in ripening that you will have if it takes its little time to, to wake up in the morning, to warm up a little bit. So you have two difference in um, ripeness that you're looking at. You have the uh, phenolic ripeness, which is the tannins and the, uh, and the anthocyanins, the color is pretty important to get on spot because this is going to be a structure of the wine. Uh, and you have the, the regular ripening, if we may say, with the sugar, the acids and everything. And those ripenings do not usually line up. There is always one that's going to go quicker than the other, um, which is how when a winemaker needs to make a decision on when to pick. Most likely, this is also very important. Uh, here in the Valley, because of the, the coldness that we have, we kind of have something that goes in similar directions. Um, so it will less, you will have less to, to cut out of a pick uh, to, to have a concession about uh, by picking your fruit, hopefully it would be riper and richer on both on both sides of it. Um, and there is also pretty good fog that sometimes around uh, here stays for quite a bit until like 10 or 11 in the morning, it happens, uh, which gets also keeps that cold around here and a good, a good humidity around, but not too much humid. Uh, there is no pressure um, for pests to, uh, to come around and for rot to, to grow as well. So it's a very good combination when you think of it. It's a pretty good balance for this uh, in aesthetic for growing vines. So the diurnal shift, the uh, the change in temperature between night and day um, mm -hmm. really benefits the mountain fruit there. I'm hearing there's a lot of heat spikes in the valley. You're in the middle of, of harvest. So, you know, we're in September right now. What's what, what's the highest temperature during the day? Just to give the audience an idea, what's high? What's the temperature right now during the day, and what does it drop down to at night? So right now it's coming down a little bit. I we clocked one fourteen during the day, and when we did that, uh, it was it didn't go below twenty six Celsius at night. So it didn't go under like seventy eight at night. When usually you're gonna find something closer to you know, um, um, 65, give or take, uh, at night. And then during the day, it's rare that it will go over, um, yeah, let's say 90, 95. Okay. So when you're dealing with these heat spikes, does the, do the vines stress out? Do they shut down? Is this forcing you to like, say maybe a push forward the harvest? What's what happens, you know, during these heat spikes? Yeah, it completely shuts down. So it stops, it stops ripening its fruit. Uh, it can go up to, if you do not pre-water, give them enough, enough water in the, in the beginning to make sure that they can handle the heat wave coming up. They can, uh, they can shut down completely and decide to abandon the fruit. So at this moment, everything is done and the fruit can, can just drop by itself. There is a lot of risks with a heat spike, especially when they happen at a time where it's not prime yet to pick. Uh, mostly for cab, it's not prime to pick for most of the cab in the valley, and the valley is mostly cab. So, it's not it's 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 pretty uh, pretty stressful. It can also impact the vine on the long term. It's possible that it gets it some damages that will remain. So, having those type of heats, you need to be ready for it. So, having misters, making sure the irrigation is here, but also to irrigate, you need to have water. So, there is a lot of uh, a lot of complexity on a heat spike coming up. But we always seem to see temperature getting higher uh, around that time of the year. Okay. And there's also a lake 
at the property. So does the lake influence the, like, is there a microclimate associated with this lake? Is there an, is there an impact the lake has? And I know, I know there's a benefit to having a lake because when I would have Anthony on the podcast, the fire engines there, the fire departments were using water from the lake to keep that fire at bay, which came very near the property. But is there a microclimate associated with that lake there? You know, that's a wonderful question. I don't know for sure, but I wouldn't be surprised that it definitely helped making sure that the temperature gets lowered by evaporating a little bit of, uh, of the water that is in the lake, participating potentially to a small fog in the morning. That helps every everything to get under control. Uh, but the biggest advantage that we have of the lake is uh, is that we're able to use it for irrigation as well. So we have that access to water that not everyone has in the valley, and it's pretty important uh, right now. Yeah, no, it's a big benefit to have that uh, water resource there. So let's talk about what's happening at the winery right now. You're in Harvest. What's going on right now at the winery? You probably can hear forklift bins in the, yeah. the processing line right behind yeah. me at the moment. Right now, we're uh, we're processing some fruit. Uh, so we're having our patisserie that came in today, actually. So uh, this is what's going into into the line. Um, so we're we're getting busy uh, between processing fruit, making sure it comes in in the prime time, logistics on how many tons we can process a day to not you know making sure the picking schedule line up as well. And then once the the, the fruit is processed. Uh, then we need to transform it into wine. And that's very important. And it takes a lot of time and effort to make that because on white wine, you press it directly, right? And then you put it in a tank, you let it ferment off skins. Uh, it's an easier concept than the fermentation as far as I'm, I'm concerned on that. On the red wine, what's really key is in the skin. So you always need to get the skin in contact with your juice while you're fermenting. So it can extract from the skins. But it's creating so much... Uh, um, carbonic gas that all the skins have a tendency to float up your, your juice in ferment. So you need to put that together. Either you punch it down or you pump the juice over. And those operations, you have um, very key moment during the fermentation based on how much alcohol is produced already uh, because you don't have the same solubility of everything in alcohol or in, in water phase. Uh, how much of the seed tannins are, start are starting to get extracted on that. The temperature is prime as well because you don't extract the same at the, the different temperature. So a lot of parameters are extremely important to nail uh, on the spot during those fermentation. That requires a lot of tasting on the tanks, making sure that the program for extraction is lined up with the numbers that we see, that everything is supported by that, that the ferment is going in the, in the right direction. Um, so yeah, we get busy for sure. So during, during the day, we have about you know, 12 to 16 hours. People are going to be here. and yeah, you go on, you take a punch down stick, you go over there and punch down the graves, you finish your entire round and it's time to start again. Okay, so nonstop. So are you are you living at the winery during harvest or do you have a short commute? <laughs> <laughs> no, I have, a, I have a commute. I'm about like 40, 45 minutes out, but I spend, I spend a, most of the time at the winery. Uh, we can include it. I mean, this is only once one time a year. We sure. cannot afford to, you know, not having everything tight. This is the moment where everyone needs to be focused the most possible. Um, so I live what, here, sort of. Which grape is the last to get picked? When do you see harvest ending for you this year? Because of that heat wave, it may just push it a little bit longer since everything is shut down at the moment. I think we should be done probably by the end of October this year. And most likely Cabernet Sauvignon or Petit Verdot are going to come at that time. End of October. 
end of October. Okay. If I can right. avoid picking in November, I'm happy. Basically, that's how I I see it this year. Why is why is that? Why don't you want to pick in November? It's fairly late already. Um, usually, I mean, if you can time your harvest to be done around like mid October, that's a that's a good sign. And if you have to pick in November, it's mostly because the, there is struggle on the vine and on the grape, and it does not give you the ripening it it you expect it to, and maybe it will not also. So yeah, picking in November fairly late, so it's usually not a good sign in in how the vine is uh, is is working itself. Yeah. So how would you sum up this 2022 harvest? Is it looking like a good harvest? I mean, the quality standpoint? Yeah, so far what we can see, very good harvest, very clean. The ferments are going well. Uh, we don't see any problems uh, um, during the fermentations. The fruit uh, season, growing season was showing great, uh, great uh, potential for this harvest. The heat spike is the, uh, the little thing that Made us raise the eyebrow a little bit, but it should not. It should not impact the quality that much. We're already over the hump at the moment, so yeah, it's it's looking really good. Looking really good. Low crop over the board across the board. We have low crop, but good quality. So I guess we'll take that. That's good to hear. And how would you sum up your first harvest at Maxville 2021? How would you sum up that vintage? Uh, 2021 was also a pretty good vintage. We didn't have slightly as uh, as much heat as we have this year it was probably a little more balanced overall but we have very very low crop um we had some issue during the because of the following of the 2020 year we had some setback effects that the vine carried over so that that hit us a little bit probably lower crop that we ever will have in 2022 but the quality was also good and uh it was the first year that i was able to play with um the grapes coming from the estate vineyard here so approaching that and, and understanding and, and learning from it, now I can apply it on the 2022 vintage with a little more confidence on that and 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 try to you know, fluctuate a little bit parameters here and there, try to always make a better wine. Sounds like uh, you're having a good time there. Yeah, it's uh, I, I'm, I'm fueling on coffee, that's for sure. Uh, <laughs> but it's fun. It, it hurts good. Harvest hurts good. <laughs> hurts so good. It's like that John Mellencamp song, right? Hurts so good. Okay. Exactly. Yeah, that's I, li- I like that a lot. I got to ask you two quick questions here. What's your favorite part of the job? Mm, seeing the transformation of the product. I think it's pretty, pretty cool to see that what we get from the grave to the barrel in aging, to the bottle, to the ageability that you get in the bottle when you open it 30 years later. I kind of like working with something that's that's alive in a sense. You know, it, it always evolves towards towards something. and. And that's trying to anticipate that is interesting, but letting it go also sometimes to just enjoy it. You know, it's a, it's also a pretty cool side of it. Yeah. You get to enjoy what you uh, made. Right. And that's always fun. What's the what least other people make. <laughs> yeah, true. True. What's the least favorite part of the job? Um, I never can take vacation in the summer. <laughs> <laughs> no i don't think there is a bad part overall like my commute is wonderful uh when i'm in the vineyard i have the best office in the world like there's a lot of of perks on that maybe i just don't see it the the way that other people would but i i feel like it's it's great overall it's great that's great to hear you're making wine in napa but you've also worked in france have you taken anything from france and incorporated into uh your your daily working habits here in in california 
Um, France is way more advanced when it comes to terroir. Obviously, the, the growing region is going back so much that they have so much uh, data point, whether it's experimental or it's like based on, on studies and everything, that they know very well um, their vineyard, their soil, their terroir, the, the combination of, of the weather. Um, and they're, especially in Bordeaux, they're really good at, at working around the, the weather because it's not really on the lie in Bordeaux when you have the rain coming up very soon and everything. So you need to like work around that. And they're still doing wonderful wines uh, in a region that is not as easy, if I can use that term, which is not really a comparison you can make, uh, as growing grapes than Napa could be, for example. Napa is almost checking all the boxes. Bordeaux is not. So learning how they were facing those uh, um, problems and how they were able to, uh, to, to turn it around is very interesting to uh, to come to a region that has less uh, data point and less history on, on how to grow or to farm and how to make wine from it. That's a cool, uh, very cool comparison. Someone came up to you, student, and said, mm-hmm. you know, said, I want to become a winemaker. What advice would you give them? Stay true to yourself very much. So stay true. Try to make the best wine ever. Do not try to cut corners or do not try to do something that does not represent um, who you are and what you want to be. Um, I had a teacher. I, I like to bring that, uh, that, uh, that expression a few times, but I had a teacher. His name was called uh, Denis Dubourdieu. He was even um, um, nicknamed the White Pope because he was consulting for very great white wineries in, in Bordeaux in general and, and uh, also red wine. And he always said, a bottle of wine is like a dead body. If you try to dump it in the water one time or the other, it will float back and someone will be able to see it and drink it. So you always need to be proud of what you put on the market or what you release out there because it will never go away and it will follow you. So make sure to be true to your, uh, to your style and your winemaking. That's a great piece of advice. Final question for this part of the podcast. What's the biggest, in your opinion, what's the biggest threat facing the California wine industry? Global warming as a whole, uh, shift on, on weather, the fires that are uh, um, going more and more, uh, sparking more and more in the valley around here, the heat, definitely, and the conservation of water that we're getting. So everything can be, we have to run on, on global warming is definitely key component of that. And uh, I, don't, I yeah, this is, this is definitely going to be a big challenge in the future, the heat, the water. Uh, the global warming as a whole yeah it's a it's a common theme you know when i talk to like you guys so you know you know winemakers across california it's just yeah mother nature's just throwing everything everything at you guys at the moment bastion i've really enjoyed chatting with you i'm not going to let you go just yet i'm going to ask you four right. questions i call this the bit q a are you ready to okay. go tell me give me the first thing that comes to mind what was your dream job as a kid before becoming a winemaker? Uh, I wanted to go in IT, IT engineer or something like that. Because I'm, I'm, I'm a geek. <laughs> IT, an engineer. Very cool. If you could go back in time to drink the mm-hmm. first vintage of any wine in the world, which wine mm-hmm. would it be? Mm, it would probably be either either Lange Bash, just to have an idea of how much that evolved, because I was able to taste several vintages of that, and I'd like to see the evolution of it all, um, or something something you know very very high up, something like Cheval Blanc or Petrus, definitely be something I would love to see how they handle their first vintage. Nice picks, living or dead. Yeah. <laughs> if you could invite any celebrity 
to share a bottle of your petite Syrah, your Maxwell petite Syrah at the winery with, who would it be? Well, I would love to, uh, to, uh, to share it with the teacher I was actually talking to you about, Denis Dubourdieu. Unfortunately, he passed a few years after my degree was done, but he had such great vision on, on wine and so great critiques, good or bad, on, on how everything is in a final product that his opinion on that would definitely, would definitely interest me. I like that answer. Money, no object. Which bottle of California wine would you have with dinner tonight? But it cannot be one of yours. Cannot be one of mine, huh? Cannot be one of mine. Um, I guess uh, I would go maybe for, you know, a Cabernet Sauvignon or a Merlot from a winery down on the Valley Fork called Turnbull. Um, I think it has wonderful Merlot. Merlot is not the, the variety that is the easiest to grow in the in this valley. And I think they're doing a good job. So I want to I want to learn more on how they're able to get this Merlot to the to the point it's at. Now from Merlot is good. Well listen, Bastion, I really had a lot of fun chatting with you on the road. And you know, thanks for being a guest this week. I really appreciated it. Thank you so much, Chuck. It was great talking to you. And next time you're here, uh, you'll hop on an ATV and we're going to see those Zinfandel vine over there. I am looking forward to coming back out. It will be soon. Very cool. Wonderful. I want to thank Bastian for being on the road with me this week. Bastian is an awesome dude and a skilled, passionate winemaker who crafts gorgeous Napa mountain fruit wines. I enjoy talking wine with Bastian while they're bang on in the middle of harvest. It's a frantic time of year for all winemakers across the Golden State and one can sense the pressure they are under to get each harvest right. And when Bastian quoted John Mellencamp's song, Hurt So Good, Summing Up Harvest Days, I nearly fell out of my chair laughing my ass off. As Bastian pointed out, you get one shot each year to make great wine. Here's raising a glass to Bastian, Maxville's winemaking team, and all California winemakers, and wishing them a successful and awesome 2022 harvest. now it's time for Wine of the Week. And my pick this week is Maxville's 2015 Petite Syrah. A seriously good Petite Syrah is inky purple in color, showcasing aromas of black cherries, blackberries, leather, cedar, with hints of mocha and dark chocolate. And this Maxville Petite Syrah hits all the right notes. This muscular red is drinking beautifully now, yet will sell her for the next decade or two. I'm going to open up this bad boy with ribeye steak for dinner. And I guarantee you that these Maxville wines will only get better now that Bastion is at the helm. The Maxville Petite Syrah and the rest of the Maxville range are part of the Tolado Wines portfolio in the United States. And mark my word, I'm working my ass off to relaunch Maxville in the United Kingdom. Spending a few days in Napa is always fun. Yet before you get to Napa, enjoy spending a night in San Francisco and walk around this historical and famous city. I usually stay in the Fisherman's Wharf area. I like this part of town. I have fond memories hanging out with my cousins, the Stuyvesants as kids and eating shrimp and crab cocktails on the wharf. The seafood and fish are always fresh and tasty at Fog Harbor Fish House. I enjoyed a great lunch there with Ralph Pinella, owner of Next Door Wines in Napa. Ralph was a guest earlier this season, episode four. The best pizza in the city is by far Tony's Pizza Napolitana at 1570 Stockton Street. 
And for drinks, the Buena Vista at 2765 Hyde Street has been serving Irish coffees since 1916. I always have time for this place. After a couple of fabulous days in the city, I'm ready to get back on the road, drive across the iconic Golden Gate Bridge, and make my way into wine country. Thank you very much for being on the road with me this week. And I hope you enjoyed our chat with Bastian Lucas. Before I go, I'm giving a shout out to my mates at Maxville Winery, Anthony Sue, John Gruenhagen, and Colin Lilly for always being generous hosts while I'm visiting Maxville. And I'll be back next week, catching up with Rex Pickett, the author of the greatest wine book ever written, Sideways, to talk about the fourth installment of this blockbuster book. If we can't hop on a flight to California, I'll bring California to you. Keep sharing this podcast with your family and friends. See you next week on the road with Mr. California Wine. Take it easy.